0: Hey, this is Diletta Lagoo, your friend at Sanasini. In our podcast, we'll be talking to curious individuals from Indonesia and Australia to explore the stories of creativity in their life and in their work. So cozy up and listen in, because creative inspiration is waiting to be discovered both here and there, or in bahasa di Sanasini. Our guest today is Komang. Hamang is also known as Rosie Clines. She's a NARM-slash-Melbourne-based vocalist and producer. She blends groove-based production with artistry influenced by her Balinese heritage to create vibrant electronic R&B described as neo-soul with a Balinese spirit. With a sold-out first show at Asia Topa in 2020, Komang now introduces herself with an independent single, Dewi, aptly named after the Indonesian word for goddess. It was actually just released, so you'll get to hear it at the end of this episode as well. In this rich conversation, we explore many themes, including Komang's activism on Indigenous rights, representation of Black, Indigenous, and people of colour, and also her journey into the musical world. I was first introduced to Komang at a Christmas party for the Indonesian community in Canberra a couple of years back, and it was actually our parents who introduced us. Super cute. Um, Komang is sweet, thoughtful, and an absolute joy to speak to. In many ways, this was a dream opening act for Sanasini. She's got more music coming out soon, so definitely hit follow on her Instagram. That's linked in our show notes. Hey, Rosie. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, super excited. This is going to be the first episode of the San Asini podcast.
2: Woohoo!
0: (laughs) (laughs) So with the San Asini podcast, I really love the idea of our listeners getting cozy and comfy with us, but I wanted to kick us off, especially in this first episode, by acknowledging our place in this country. You're an Australian-Indonesian artist living in the unceded lands of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. I'm an Indonesian person settling here and doing the same. So this uncomfortable truth has been a big part of your advocacy. And it's something I really resonate with as well, even though I'm still finding my words for it sometimes. And, you know, this is one of the first conversations coming out of San Sanasini. So I really wanted to start by making room for this. Um, so yeah, can we <laughs> chat a little bit about the journey that has led you to some of your realizations around this.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I I also want to acknowledge that I am speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people um, of the Kulin Nation. And I'd also like to pay my respect to the elders past, present and emerging. Um, yeah, I. I mean, I guess I'd like to preface... My answer to your question with the fact that I'm by no means an expert on this so um, I'm just kind of stumbling along still and trying to educate myself as best as I can um, so I suppose all I can really offer are my own experiences and reflections but um, I guess there's a bit of a backstory a bit of context if you will um, I grew up in Brunei and I went to a British international school so From the very start, my experience of, of land rights and race politics was, um, not informed in Australia. It was informed by, um, this very idyllic, um, sense of, like, globalism, which was shaped by essentially British colonialism. (laughs) Um, so, um... I mean I'm blessed that I have grown up in an environment where I was able to be friends with kids from all around the world and um, where pride in one's language and culture was really encouraged Um, but by the same token we were never taught in school what racism was Uh, we were never taught about um, like indigeneity and issues around indigeneity um, and our viewing of Brunei's colonial history with Britain was treated really lightly So yeah, I mean, I dare say it was even romanticized with the lens of the good old days.
0: Yeah, I totally get that. I mean, coming from Indonesia, we still see remnants of this attitude today, like in the way that there's almost an elite pride to being of Dutch descent or being Dutch speaking. Um, For those listening who aren't familiar with the history of Indonesia, we were colonized by the Dutch for three and a half centuries. It's freaking wild.
1: Mm, yeah yeah totally yeah you can definitely see it like it I feel like it permeates um not only western countries but also like places like Indonesia and stuff it's like super complex um when I moved to Australia I was 16 and I was in this predominantly white girls school in a very white neighborhood in Melbourne um and I guess like my own views back then were like that Australia is a super white place. Um, and when I attended my first Invasion Day rally when I was 18, um, that was when I first really heard First Nations activists speaking and started to clue in on what was really happening here because I just wasn't taught at school. Um, yeah, so I suppose my view as a teen of, be- um, of being an other in a really white, environment made me feel really disconnected from any sort of conversation around Australia in general so yeah I mean I barely even define myself as an Australian person so why would I think that I was included in this conversation and I mean I've spoken to other folks who feel similarly this way Um, many of us who have moved here from Asia or other parts of the world to study Um, We might see the struggle First Nations folks here have as being a white versus black issue um, that we're not a part of, but it's just not. I mean, we aren't white, but we are complicit with white folks here because we're settlers too. Um, And the simple fact of the matter is that anyone who is not Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander on this land is complicit with the privileges we gain from colonial rule simply because we're also settlers. Um, so for me, my turning point as a young adult was realizing that I, too, was complicit and that as an uninvited person on this land, um, I needed to choose which side I'm on. Um, I mean, with Black Lives Matter and everything, we've had this old adage of if you're silent, you automatically choose the side of the oppressor.
0: Yeah, that's a really powerful line. And I think I first read it in um, Night, which was a book written by Elie Wiesel, um, an Auschwitz survivor. uh, And I believe it was also said by Desmond Tutu in South Africa. Yeah, that's
1: right. Thanks for the quote there. I was like, oh my gosh, you said it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, ironically, deciding that this is where I want to place myself in the conversation has also been really freeing for me to um, in understanding more about yeah as you said the complexities of colonialism in Indonesia first from the Dutch and now what Indonesia is doing with West Papua essentially so I'm free to understand why I stand as someone who gets the benefits of having European heritage and of being light-skinned and all that but also, how mixed race folks, for example, have been othered by white societies historically. So the more I learn, I, the more I'm able to take responsibility and to free myself and hopefully use that as a model for others as well.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting to navigate with the complexity of our own identities, um, so many aspects of it simply being inherited. And I think it's a really powerful thing that you're what you're saying there, that we do have to take responsibility over our own learning and unlearning.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, as we define ourselves, um, sorry, as we define for ourselves what we think is important and just in the world, it means we can create positive change as well. So, um, I mean, I've been working one day a week for a small platform called Creatives of Color, which I started with a fellow Indonesian creative, Rani Premesti last year. Um, and it's very much focused on creating nurturing, joyful, inspiring spaces and events for indigenous and black identifying and, and other people of color working as creatives. So trying to turn this, um, anger into tangible ways of helping, I guess, centered around cultivating joy and and care. So I know it's a bit of a um, heavy and a political start to the conversation, but yeah you're absolutely right we before we have a conversation on creativity and identity and music we need to respectfully acknowledge that we do so on stolen lands yeah yeah um but i I loved how you
0: um wrap that up there um with you know shifting our action in um shifting our anger into positive action um where, where can our listeners learn more about creatives of color
1: Um, well, we've got an Instagram page, which is probably the best way to get in touch and like learn about upcoming events and stuff. Um, a lot of the events and, um, all of them at the moment are (laughs) online, (laughs) um, since lockdown. So you can just jump on zoom and join in from wherever you are in the world. Uh, Awesome. Yeah. Check it out.
0: Yeah. We'll make sure to add the Instagram handle in the show notes as well. But yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your openness and honesty um, and I think, yeah, it's so, so important and I'm glad that we're, we've made space um, to discuss that today. Mm-hmm. So I was at your Mythology's Topa performance earlier in February, which <sighs> feels like a lifetime away now. Is, <laughs> it's just unreal. Anyway, you, you performed music from Dewey, um that would have just been released by the time this podcast is out. Um, it's so funny talking about, uh, as if I'm in the future, (laughs) (laughs) there, there are many themes about Indonesian identity in your music, and I'm someone who identifies as being Indonesian, but I've lived less than half of my life there. I often find myself living in tension with many aspects of culture, politics, and traditional values. So I'm keen to explore some of those themes in, in your music.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um. I mean, I definitely battled with this sense of identity as well. I felt imposter syndrome for the longest time. I'm kind of sick of it now, so I'm just trying to be like, stop. (laughs) Just stop. But um, lately I've been thinking a lot about these things, especially, again, with the Black Lives Matter movement and the anti-blackness we're realizing Indonesia really has in a lot of ways, whether that has something to do with... um, you know something as simple as my aunties teasing some of my cousins who have darker skin or lightening skin creams and all the way to um yeah the occupation of West Papua by the government at the moment and in that feeling like how can i have an opinion of this when i'm mixed race and i'm light skinned and i live overseas and i didn't grow up in indonesia But I'm just realizing now I can have an opinion of this and it doesn't mean I can't acknowledge that the whole thing is complex um, and that I'm, again, not an expert and that I have privileges in this conversation, but I can't just shut up about it. So we need to acknowledge that, I don't know, while we can be proud to be Indonesian, um, we can also... be like not necessarily proud of Indonesian politics or um, different values that we don't align with. And, and that's okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And in a way that identity or Indonesian identity, it shapes, I think, along with us, um, you know, we play a role in forming how that looks in the future. Um, I know I often make the mistake of seeing it as one thing that's static, but it's also been really exciting to you know, be an adult now and engage in these conversations with my friends in Indonesia today without, you know, being like an angsty teenager <laughs> I sadly was. <laughs> um, anyway, so l- let's discuss your music. When I first met you, I remember you're doing theater and acting, and it's been so beautiful watching your journey. Thank Can you tell me a bit about the shift or like the time that led you to, you know, pivot, pursue music?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I was, yeah, definitely much more focused on theater and acting um, previously. Um, Yeah, I guess even from my senior high school days, I was um, pushed in that direction, which, um, you know, one thing leads to another. I um, started auditioning for the big drama schools when I graduated from high school, Uh, And then I got accepted into the Victorian College of the Arts drama program Um, and I spent that whole time really engrossed in the theatre world, um, building my love for it and my knowledge of it. So I came out of drama school and high school um, where I was really used to working hard and then getting the grades to show for it um, into this messy ocean of (laughs) auditioning actors. That is the Australian TV and theatre scene. Um, And I was just like, whoa, I'm not into this. (laughs) Like, you mean you can't just work hard and then get the grades? Like, what? Like, how does this whole system work? Um, Which is a whole thing in itself. But um, I don't know. I just, I didn't, I felt powerless and I didn't want to feel powerless. I wanted to train in drama school to feel capable and autonomous. So I was like, okay, I've graduated, um, I feel burnt out from uni and I don't know what I'm doing in this industry, I don't like how it works, um, why don't I just leave? <laughs> and I knew this meant going to Indonesia because that's something I really felt I had um, a yearning for since I was in my early che- early teens. Um, and I just knew one day that I'd go back there to live and finally like... Um, in quotation marks learn how to be an Indonesian ha 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 like what does that even mean? (laughs) (laughs) So I know I I mean after
0: living in the Philippines for over four years I was so excited to go back home to Indonesia and reconnect Um, and I did a full month of eat pray love in Bali which is (laughs) so so ironic Um, you know but despite that like flawed approach I, I did learn a lot and It feels like such a privilege, um, you know, in the best way possible to to be able to call this crazy and insanely rich and diverse country my, my home.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, like when you say, I mean, we keep talking about Indonesia as like this monolith, but really it's just so varied and like we're so lucky that we can have access to so many parts of it and be like, this is all of my home. But um, by the same token, it's like, dang, it's, yeah, it's just so diverse. Yeah, it's wild.
0: So you went on this big trip to Indonesia as well, you
1: were saying. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, and I was really lucky because the year before, I, um, a really incredible multidisciplinary collective from Jogja, Teater um, Garasi, had visited my campus and I'd made friends with one of the artists. So... Um, I asked this friend of mine, Sita, if I could come over and just sit on their, in on their rehearsals and like, kind of like check Jogja out at the same time. And she said they had an internship program going for young performers. So I was like, perfect. And I decided to apply for that. And this is also where my privilege comes in and I'm so thankful I got to do this because I applied for a grant through the Australian government, which gave me the money to live in Jogja for just under a year and learn Indonesian at UGM and just learn from this incredible theatre company. So my time in back in Indonesia was really pivotal and it gave me space to exist on levels I hadn't really experienced at the VCA or in Australia. Um, so I found ways to stay um, and that included living and working in Jakarta and in Bali as well. and. Yeah, it was during these times that I began to tend to producing music, which was something I'd also always wanted to do since I was a teen, but which I had continually blocked myself from learning about because I always told myself I was too old to pick it up um, and that I should have learned it earlier. Like, I was telling myself this when I was 22, which is so <laughs> stupid because you're a baby then. Um, yeah, fear has definitely been the biggest block for me to create music, but through slowly chipping away at it I have um allowed that creative energy to bloom and for my producing to get better I just I don't know I keep learning over and over again that no one is going to make make stuff happen for you unless you make it happen for yourself and if you're in the privileged position of being able to choose what you want to do with your life why don't you just go out and do it you know (laughs) like this life is too precious to live lives that we think other people want us to live when we have access to potentially a life that we we want to live um anyway so there were some really pivotal moments in my music journey in general though like the first was reading the artist's way by julia cameron which is an incredible book um and the second was having a housemate back in Melbourne, Hayley, who felt just as stuck as me. Um, we were both these two women who really wanted to make music but had no idea where to start. Um, so we'd make a date every Tuesday night and we'd um, we called it accountability Tuesdays uh, where we'd sit with each other and just action even like the smallest steps, like downloading Ableton or learning what MIDI is. Um, and then the third was a class I attended in Jakarta at Double Deer Records called Hip Hop Artistry by an incredible Jakartan rapper called Lays. And it was there that I began to learn how different genres are structured and how to produce for people and, and get my confidence up in general. Yeah. Well, I I just want to, like, ground in some of the
0: things that you said there. Because um, there, there's so much in, around, um, you know, life being so precious and living out what you want to do, because I, I totally agree with, with that. And um, I, I think it's also... It, it determines like the, the chances of succeeding as well, because if you're stuck in something... I mean, this, this seems so obvious sometimes, but it's actually hard to see when you're in that loop. Um, but yeah, when, when you're stuck in something that you don't actually enjoy, or love, um, it's it's really hard to to grow or um, develop your career. Uh, and really, really happy that you had that realization. And you know, your friend Haley to have those accountability Tuesdays. I love that idea so much.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's um, I've tried to like repeat that idea since then with other friends because it's just so useful to have like a friend to turn to and be like, hey, you, you are you doing that thing? <laughs> Yeah, Um, absolutely.
0: And with the Sanasini project, when when I started it, I was alone and it was very, very slow. And the moment that um, Dodi joined me and then Alba, Prabhu and Arun joined me and now there's four of us. It's just like so much life, you know, put into it. Um, It's incredible what, um, you know,
1: working with other people does. Totally. It really um gives you that sense of momentum for it. Hey. And I guess similarly to like when you're in something and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm doing this job that I don't like and I don't know any way out, like having momentum like that from people or whatever, it just really makes you realise, oh this is actually possible. I can actually do this. Mm, for sure, for sure.
0: Um okay, wait, you, you also mentioned Jakarta there and working with some Jakarta and rappers. Um is was this the, around that same time you were working with Ezra Kunze Because you mentioned him in your bio, and I actually went to the same high school as him, and um, we went on one cute childish date in
1: your eight, which is so funny. Oh my gosh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> that's like small world, hey. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, I've, I've collaborated with Ezra before and um, Kiki, who is a producer um, who makes work under the alias of Grey Um and just kind of hung around their general crew and what they do because they're, like, just doing really cool stuff. I love their work. Yeah. Um, anyway, you tell us a little bit more about
0: the Asia Topa performance because that was huge.
1: Yeah, that was a big... That was, like, the pivotal moment, I reckon. Well, most recently. Um, yeah, so... Again, I, I got this grant, um, another grant from Signal Arts, which is a space for young artists in the city. And each year they give out a grant to um, like six or so different artists who want to take uh, undertake a project. Um, and I pitched the creation and launch of a music EP. And I pitched it as this transitionary project that would allow me to move from the theater world into the music scene. And I didn't really think I would get it. So I kind of just went all out and I was like, yeah, I'll just make this EP, whatever. Um, but I did <laughs> and it was amazing. Um, and that's, I guess that's where it all comes full circle because while that project really pushed me to hone my production skills further, cause I had to make an EP, <laughs> um, I was also able to use my skills as a theater maker and a performer and a curator from my theater days to create this multidisciplinary immersive night as my first solo show Um, I didn't really want to just create a gig I wanted to create a space where people could get together and feel they were a part of something a community made up of different worlds and so I had dancers and spoken word poets each presenting performances relating to the theme of the EP um, which is mythologies And there was Indonesian food, which my family contributed to the event. And there were DJs at the end. And um, we made sure that while the food and the event was free, people could also contribute donations if they were able to. And um, we donated these funds to Seed Mob and um, other local initiatives that were helping um, Indigenous communities affected by the fires because that was the time of the bushfires. I remember how the venue was absolutely
0: packed. And the food was amazing. And it was so lovely to see your mom there. <laughs> Tantanani! <Shout out. laughs> um, so many of the words that you sang at the performance as well were really relatable to me. I felt like, you know, you had absolutely and unapologetically taken ownership of your identity. It was just boss woman vibes all around. Um, so I'm keen to explore some of those themes in your music. How how would you describe some of those key
1: inspirations? Um. Okay, well, I mean, there's so, oh, like, hmm. I guess some of my key inspirations are. I'll just rattle off the list here. Um, I mean, there's Sade, there's Blood Orange, Solange, Little Dragon, Sweet Chen, Hidas Coyote. Um. And also, like <laughs> funnily enough, the sounds of Dangdut and Funkot when I lived in Indonesia really <laughs> inspired me. So I mean, I guess like the through line is artists and artistic traditions that blend pop music with unexpected elements, um, which are centered around playfulness and curiosity. I grew up listening to Shade with my mum and I love Blood Orange and Solange and Little Dragon for similar reasons. I love Shade. because when I listen to them, they make my ears prick up and wonder, like, what What is this? Is this is this pop? Is this classical? Is this soul? Is this R and B? Um, yeah, and I, I just love the way artists like them blend playfulness with a really deep sense of um, musical and cultural knowledge as well. Like it, Blood Orange, for example. He's such an incredible instrumentalist, but you can also hear his deep pride in Black music and culture in his production. For example, he references sounds and styles that really belong to Black culture, like that classic trap percussion that we hear now, like, appropriated everywhere. But anyway, um, he, like, chops and screws his music and he um, filters in, like, air horn sound effects, like, blending blending all these different uh, elements from a culture that he holds so dear to him, but, and then like really making them his own. Um, So I just try and enter my own music with that sense of play and that sense of respect for the cultures I see myself to be a part of as well. Yeah. I, a lot of um, my fire creatively, when I lived in Indonesia came from moments at like house parties and while I was out, um, and we'd hear dangdut being played in the warung when we were eating, like at the end of the night or like When the DJ would play funkot in the depths of the event to like kind of like mess with us and like <laughs> um, you know just like get some like funkot energy <laughs> into the party. And I would always turn to my friends and be like, "Do you reckon you could blend funkot with?" deep house or like do you reckon you could um blend Dungdut with r&b and people would just <laughs> laugh at me but i would be like no seriously like this is such untapped incredible energy like and it was moments like that that i would just be like okay challenge accepted um and that's it was those like challenges in my head that like really pushed me to learn how to produce music as quickly as i did <laughs> um but i <laughs> i really love that you've done that
0: because i've also always wondered um especially with dangdut. And, like, man, Indonesian parties, like, even when there isn't alcohol, they're pumping. Like, people know how to get down. Like, they love to dance. Yep. Um, so <laughs> it's great. And uh, a quick note to our listeners, um, look up some dangdut. It's, it's a vibe. <laughs>
1: yep, such a vibe. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, like what you said about, like, Indonesians knowing how to party and dance to Dangdut is so on point like for me a lot of this playfulness and um, joy really came from living in Jogja I could see it a lot I mean I love the Jogja art scene because it's so irreverent while also being so respectful of all its references of the past of mythology and everyone's roots this is where I heard a lot of dongdut being played in party and like even in contemporary art settings, just like these young scene kids really leaning into it um, unashamedly. <laughs> While in Jakarta, it really felt like the music scene was way more like western centric, like really focused on trying to look cool and like be cool and, and um, like play a lot of like um, like techno from Detroit or whatever. Um, and like even like popular rap, like um Rich Brian and Ramen Girl and so on, they all rap in English. And like, yeah, it's fine. And that music is also incredible, but I've just found Jogja's um, artistic ethos, how it is just like unafraid to blend everything together um with and like acknowledge roots. It's yeah, much more inspiring for me.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And a bit biased about Jogja, my family comes from there, so I'm really glad, um, well, really proud to hear you mention that. And you paint a really, really nice picture of what it's like being there. It's such a special place.
1: It is, yeah. I miss it.
0: Ah, <laughs> mm. oh, me too. Feels like I, I don't know when I'll get to go again. <laughs> it's yeah. Crazy.
1: Yeah, it's weird mm. to think about that. Mm. Oh, um... I mean going back to the songs themselves like you were asking before, um, I guess a lot of my work came out of just this straight-up confusion I always felt while I was in Indonesia um, of needing to place myself in narratives that were helpful to me to like get through it and like figure out like okay I do belong here this is my home and so on. Um, so, for example, I spent a lot of time telling myself when I was there, um, I just don't belong here and I'm too white to be Indonesian and I speak Indonesian like a buller and so on. And I just eventually really got fed up with it. And I was like, hang on, whose side am I on here? <laughs> Why am I being such a jerk to myself, you know? Um, and so the theme of my work, Mythologies, and the name of the solo launch at Asia Topa was... Um, not only about connecting to traditional mythologies but um of literally connecting to and creating stories for yourself which serve you better so for example one song was called srikandi which is named after my best friend mira um whose middle name is srikandi and she's also um indonesian australian and srikandi was about her mental journey in like feeling um indonesian enough to finally get her namesake tattooed on her back um, so the lyrics for example are warrior woman on your shoulder blade she could be any anyone she says is ready are you ready um, and funnily enough that is one of the songs I tried to blend dangdut and hip-hop elements together as well so there you go um, and the single I've got for example Dewi which is just um, oh well it has come out by now, which is also weird to think that we're in the future as we speak. Um, yeah, it starts off in Indonesian. Um, don't look into the broken mirror. So in other words, don't. Um, in other words, find yourself a clear mirror in which to view yourself because there's no use in continuing to choose to see yourself as broken, you know?
0: That's so... Powerful, And it actually just gave such a shiver in my spine.
2: (laughs)
1: Oh, bless.
0: (laughs) Thank you for actually, um, yeah, citing those lyrics. It's it's actually so cool to be able to have this conversation with you because I I remember just like sitting there and like feeling really inspired and connected. um, And I was like particularly as well, so moved by Mira's story, um, the Surkandi song, um, when you shared it because my second name is Drupadi a character from the Mahabharata, which was very influential to Javanese-Indonesians, originally written in Sanskrit. Um, And Drupadi was a really interesting character, actually. She was married to the five Pandava brothers, um, very fiery and independent, um, so quite probably like a feminist icon, one of the earliest. Um, But I remember feeling removed from the name growing up because you know, I, get, I got made fun of because of it um, and it was quite a journey to finally feeling connected with it so it was um, so nice seeing you perform and perform that song for Mira and you know write that inspired from her story and I saw you guys hug at the end or you know <laughs> after you had sung the song and it was so cute <laughs> yeah um, it
1: was special yeah mm. I'm glad you relate to it
2: <sighs>
0: yeah awesome Um, So, yeah, Sanasini is a project exploring creativity in Indonesia and Australia, and I'm really interested in learning about how you observe the world around you or how you draw inspiration from your experiences. Do you have any um, specific processes when you translate some of that into your work? I know you talked about some of your um, influences earlier, um, but yeah, do you just follow your nose?
1: I'm still trying to figure that one out myself. So I guess for the moment with my music production, I try to follow what inspires me. I'm honestly still such a copycat. I often use copycatting as the beginning of my process, especially when I'm stuck. So um, yeah, I'll hear a song, for example, and I'll think, wow, that's a really cool bass line. I wonder how I can make that sort of texture. And I'll lead with that. Or I'll think, whoa, I really love how the song blends G-Funk with contemporary elements. What makes G-Funk G-Funk? Why does it sound contemporary now? What happens if I play with those elements? So for the moment it's really organic and it's driven by inquisitiveness. Um, I do have a tendency to be outcome driven and perfectionistic, uh, which I'm trying to soften. I really don't think perfectionism is a useful trait whatsoever Um, so I really try to stick to exercising that curiosity muscle but um, yeah I want to start being more intentional with how I show up for my music Um, I want to start being clear with what areas I want to prove on improve upon and grow with for example and just go from there so who knows really
0: (laughs) yeah um also I think like the with the whole copycatting thing it, it I think there's something really special with one's ability to take one thing as an inspiration and create an interpretation of it so and not only is it like a really bad thing but like when you actually try to emulate a similar concept to something someone else has created you realize it's actually not that easy to copy something or to reach a certain level of quality so it really is just a great way to learn another super super cool thing I wanted to highlight is um you know this is something you mentioned at Asia Topa as well and that you produce all of your own tracks yeah and um you know people often have an assumption Do you want,
1: um,
0: yeah say something about that yeah
1: yeah <laughs> for sure um yes people always i mean including me as well like i feel like people always assume that um women don't produce their own tracks when they're when you see like a female artist um that's a habit i have as well which i'm getting better at like um shutting up when i'm like oh a pop star and i'm like actually no maybe she produces her own tracks and and off like you know sometimes they do and um I noticed like I like especially around the Asia Topa launch I would really have to drum it into people's heads that I produce my own music and even still after that like um after the Asia Topa event for example people were coming up to me and asking like who produced your music and I was like <laughs> <laughs> I literally just said I produce my own music like come on and people would go up to my best friend who's a, a guy who's a musician and they would assume he was producing my music so i don't know it's like it's this whole thing that people have in their heads um and it's getting better especially in australia but it really we really need to like um work on it because it's not on and um i feel like it's it's really it's really annoying for like mm-hmm. female producers to just have to deal with that all the time yeah
0: So you heard it guys, FYI, she is her own producer.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And never assume, always check when, with your favorite female musician, whether they produce their own music.
0: Mm -hmm. I feel like we covered so much in this conversation. Thank you so much for being so generous and, you know, sharing so much about your musical journey and your story. It's been so wonderful chatting. Um, And so we're going to close this episode with a song from you. Um, and i just thought okay maybe i'll ask you to introduce it to our listeners and maybe mention where they can find you as well and um yeah we'll leave it there thank you so much rosie cool
1: thank you so much didi um yeah cool all right well here we go folks here is Dewey, (laughs) my first ever debut single it's on all streaming platforms so you can find it wherever you listen to your music and uh, I'm just gonna let you listen to the song now, <laughs> and hopefully, you like it. Oh, uh, yeah, find me on Instagram and let me know what you think. Um, yeah, please just um, reach out and send me a message or something. Would love to know. <laughs>
2: She
0: The Sini podcast is recorded in Narm, in the languages of the Bonwarung and Woiworong Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation, Narm is the name of the area we now call Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognize their continuing connection to land, waters, and culture. We also recognize the wisdom of our ancestors across the ocean, di Tanah Air, di Indonesia. The music you hear in the beginning and end of our show is the song Kalapa Garden from the album Bahasa by Young Marco. It features recordings of the Desa Babakan Gamelan Ensemble in Bali, Indonesia. Your friends at Sanasini are Alba Legowo, Prabu Legowo, Aren Budi Prabawa, and me, Dilata Legowo. We share many stories and some of the Sanasini process on Instagram, so we'd love to connect with you there. Thanks for joining us. Terima kasih.